Let's do this. Let's talk about talk. Hey there, I'm your communication coach, Dr. Andrea Wojnicki. Please call me Andrea. Welcome to Talk About Talk. Talk About Talk is the communication skills focused podcast for lifelong learners and for folks who are seeking to get noticed and advance their careers. Does that sound like you? Well, you're in the right place. Sure, some people make communication skills look easy, but it's not easy. It takes practice and it takes know-how. Talk About Talk gives you the know-how on things like networking, storytelling, communicating with confidence, and today we're talking about culture, as in what corporate culture is and how to communicate it. For this episode, I interviewed my longtime friend, culture expert, Hilton Barber. Yes, we had a lot of fun in this interview, as you're about to hear. You're going to learn what culture is, how it's communicated, a few examples of firms with strong positive cultures, and two culture-related challenges that Hilton offers to leaders in this current challenging business environment. You'll also laugh along with us in this episode. I promise you that. Hilton is a very funny guy. I'm going to introduce Hilton to you now, then get straight to the interview. As always, I'll summarize at the end, so you definitely don't need to take notes. Just keep doing whatever you're doing as you're listening, whether you're driving or doing housework or walking the dog, whatever you're doing, you don't need to stop to take notes. In addition to my summary at the end, you can also easily reference the summary and transcript in the show notes on the talkabouttalk.com website. Okay? All right, let me introduce Hilton. Hilton's personal mantra is question everything. Over the past 20 years, he's put that mantra to task across diverse settings, categories, and markets. Hilton's led brand, digital, and business strategy engagements for global brands like IBM, Coca-Cola, Nokia, Enron, Hilton Hotels, and Ernst & Young, and in geographical markets including Canada, Japan, the UK, Germany, and Bulgaria. Hilton's passion is to create winning brands by helping businesses become more adept at handling change and more effective at creating extraordinary customer experiences. He has a strong belief in the power of organizational culture to transform organizations. Hilton says that culture is the true competitive differentiator for organizations in the 21st century. While he'd never publicly disagree with Peter Drucker about culture eating strategy, his fundamental belief is that strategy is the engine and culture is the fuel. All right, let's do this. Thank you, Hilton, so much for joining us here today to talk about culture. What a pleasure. It's an absolute pleasure, Andrea. What a delightful opportunity to reconnect. So thank you for that. Let's start with a definition. What is culture? Well, I can tell you first off what culture isn't. Culture isn't beer card Fridays, vegan muffins in the cafeteria, and often those wonderful posters that people put on the wall. There are two definitions of culture that ring very true for me. One quite academic, which is culture is how we act, behave, and make decisions to fit into an organization. And I think there's a lot of truth around the two parts of make decisions and fit in. The second, and this is a definition that I've heard quite recently, culture is how the edges of your organization behave on your very worst day. Wow. And I think in light of COVID, that probably was the most profound statement that I'd heard from any executive about the impact of culture. So in both definitions, 
it's really about the people. So in your first definition, it's about how they're acting, how they're behaving, how they're making decisions and fitting in, conforming or not conforming. And in the second definition, it's also about that in particular, the ones that are on the periphery. So is culture really people management? I would say culture is everything to do with humans inside our organization. You know, I always have a visceral reaction to the notion of management. There can be all sorts of weird misinterpretations of of the word manage. And certainly I have an even more visceral reaction around the word human resources. I was going to ask. Well, there's, there's certain phrases that I think management theorists coined whether it was the 60s or the 80s, where they seemed rather profound ways of putting people in boxes. And I think the unfortunate thing is the connotation becomes that this is something to be used and casually tossed aside when I've finished with it. It sounds like like an asset that you can leverage and then... Absolutely. And I have no problem. And in fact, I think there's an excellent point around humans actually are some of the greatest, most incredible assets that any business has. I think the struggle that I have is when those assets are seen as easily replaceable, an asset to be exploited or an asset to be underutilized, which can often be as crushing as anything else. That part of the acid stripping is what really gets me around some of these terms and how they're applied to culture and organizations today. Right. So I I just want to clarify a little bit more in terms of the definition. Mm -hmm. You said that it's looking at humans that are inside the organization. And I'm curious, what about customers and consumers? Well, I think the customers and consumers are profoundly impacted by the culture. I will talk to leaders around customer service, which is for many organizations, the most explicit objective that they will put down. We are a customer centric organization, which I think you and I would both laugh at in terms of what would be the alternative. But the irony is that customer centricity is actually an outcome of your culture. Mm -hmm. It's not an objective, it's an outcome. Your culture will determine whether your people are profoundly interested in serving customers or see customers as a necessary requirement and they'll put a plastic smile on their face and do the very bare minimum to serve them. I think the wonderful examples, obviously, Starbucks would be an organization whose customer centricity is without debate. And I think the profound and deep training for their people highlights that they recognize that Customer centricity is what happens when you get your culture right. Have you read Ron Tite's Think, Say, Do? I have indeed. Ron is an old friend and just a fantastic all-around human being. Yeah, yeah. I adore his mind. I have to be honest. And I, I just finished his book recently. And I'm thinking now that you've mentioned Starbucks, he talks about lots of examples where I'm not sure that he actually uses the word culture, but he is describing a culture where the corporate beliefs are articulated. That's what they think. And then they do it. And then they say it. And he talks a lot about, for example, the Westin Hotel in Vancouver that went over backwards to delight him. And that was part of their culture. Look, I think we can both agree that any organization that delivers Diet Coke to Ron Tite's room is going to be considered a, a high point of customer service. And all joking aside, his point is incredibly valid. That customer service comes from a deep understanding of what is unique about that customer and the things that they value. But here's a great Canadian example, a great international example born here in Canada, which is the Four Seasons. 
I mean, Izzy Sharp's understanding of culture as a differentiator, particularly in the hospitality sector, is unprecedented. There is an organization based on a very simple cultural premise of the golden rule. And following that up with, we trust our people to solve what our guests require. And having the trust, again, I think that that's something that Izzy Sharp and Four Seasons were decades ahead of everybody else, is pushing trust and confidence down to the point where the guest and the organization meet. And I think many other organizations came to that realization decades later, but it really does set the Four Seasons apart. Sadly, I don't get to enjoy the Four Seasons as much as I may have done before COVID. Exactly. exactly. But I desperately look forward to that day. Four Seasons, let me home. Oh my gosh, the hotels are going to be overflowing with happy people. So you, you mentioned the word intersection. And before we move on, I just, I have to ask you this. At the top of your website, it says, strategy is the engine, culture is the fuel. Mm-hmm. Can you elaborate on the distinction or maybe the interaction between culture and strategy? Sure. You know, both of us come from a marketing background and, you know, my foray and, and deep and abiding passion for culture really is informed by what I'd say is our shared marketing background, you know, which is you create this wonderful strategy, this, this breathtaking plan, ideally in less than 400 PowerPoint slides. <laughs> and then you march it into an executive team and they anoint it. Go make that happen. Yeah. And then you leave the boardroom with a big smile on your face and you take it into the organization and the organization says, what do you want me to do with that? Yeah. <laughs> Didn't you ask me to do something different last year? Last year when I did that thing, I actually didn't get rewarded for it the way you told me I would. Mm. All of us have seen Peter Drucker's sadly misquoted thing about culture eats strategy in LinkedIn at least 10 or 15 times a day. Right. There is an inherent truth in that though, because there is no organization whose strategy and critically importantly, the ability to execute that strategy mm. that doesn't have to come face to face with the culture's willingness to do it. And that for me is always the most critical part. A strategy is a fantastic blueprint and a roadmap and ideally set of objectives. But somebody somewhere has got to put their hand up and say, I'm on board. What can I do to make that happen? And that's all about the commitment of your people. And again, that to me is culture. Got it. So is a simple way of thinking about it would be to say that the strategy is the objectives and the priorities that are articulated and the culture is the how? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Andrea, the truth of the matter is, unless your strategy and your culture are aligned, you're never going to be able to as effectively execute what you're trying to set out. You know, in previous conversations, you had said to me, why this passion for culture? Isn't that the domain of HR people? Did I say that? No, you would never do something like that. But I think it's a, a sad and unfortunate reality. HR has been given the responsibility for culture, where the truth of the matter is, it is almost the catalyst for everything that does or does not happen inside an organization. Mm. It's a tremendous responsibility. And that for me is why there is a role for marketing, a very important role for marketing to play in culture formation 
because at the end of the day, I believe that your culture is truly your only sustainable competitive advantage. What gets any marketer out of bed in the morning? A sustainable competitive advantage. Right. So my next question for you was going to be, why does culture matter? Culture encourages loyalty. It encourages consumer resonance. And Mm -hmm. it ultimately would contribute to the bottom line. Mm -hmm. But I think what you've identified here is something that kind of supersedes all of that. It's like an umbrella over all of that. So one of my favorite people who work in the culture space, there's this great guy called Stan Slap. I mean, Stan gets kudos just for his incredible name. But Stan's belief is your culture is actually a mark of the commitment of your people. Ah. And I can't think of a, of a better way to define it. Yeah. And I think anybody listening to this can probably do a quick little mental analysis to probably point out at least one organization where their commitment was head and shoulders above the commitment they had at any other task or role or job that they had. Can I just interject? As you're saying that, I'm thinking about the employers that I've had. And it turns out that the ones that are at the top of that mountain that you're describing have incredible brands with incredible brand equity. And the ones that I would say had a questionable culture, Mm -hmm. the brand was not as impressive. I would say, you know, you reap what you sow. For me, the simple definition of your culture is not whether it's good or bad. I think those are rather binary precepts and actually obfuscate what culture really is. Mm. If your culture is able to accelerate the delivery, the execution, the activation of your strategy, then your culture is actually delivering what you needed to do as a business leader. Right. If your culture is impeding the execution of your strategy, then something's wrong. It's either your strategy isn't believed by your culture. Or your culture looks at your strategy and says, what exactly are you wanting us to do? Are you insane? They're inconsistent. Yeah. The incongruence is where the issue lies. You can't look at your culture in a binary term and say, is it good or bad? And as outsiders, it's impossible for us to really make those determinations. I can't comment of working at Amazon or Apple or Facebook or Google or JP Morgan. Right. As outsiders, we can look at artifacts and, you know, the famous culture guru, if you will, Edgar Schein would say, there are artifacts, but it's it's when you get down to the level where decisions are made, that you really understand how a culture works. And it isn't the posters on the wall and it isn't the cute things that we say on coffee mugs, et cetera, et cetera. It's how decisions are made. And those decisions are driven by your culture. So I am dying to hear some of the stories that you have. Mm-hmm. And I do know that you are the son of an African father and a Scottish mother, and you are a heck of a storyteller. So <laughs> I'm wondering when someone asks you to illustrate an example of a highly effective or maybe a highly ineffective culture and the impact that it has on an organization, mm-hmm. what stories come to mind? How long is this podcast again? How many days? Three do you hours. Have? Go for it. Oh, fair enough. Okay. There are two examples for me that solidified my belief in culture as something that has an impact on strategy and culture as something that marketing people, I think, should be paying infinitely more attention to. One, I was but a young pup. Doesn't that sound like a wonderful start to a story? Yeah. Um, Okay, Grandpa. (laughs) 
Okay, Boomer. I was at Ogilvy here in Toronto and some colleagues that I worked with uh, on one of the global pieces of business said, have you ever considered working in New York? And obviously the, the immediate answer was, yes, I can be on the next plane. <sighs> and they said, well, we have this very interesting client, very progressive, very sort of innovative, doing all sorts of weird and crazy things. We need people who would be invigorated by that type of assignment. I said, sign me up. What's his company called? And they said, it's called Enron. (laughs) You might have heard of them, or you may not in Canada because they're in oil and gas and they're based in Texas, but they're diversifying into all sorts of other things. But they are a remarkable organization. So I went down to New York, I I moved to New York, and I went immediately to work on the Enron business. And I must tell you, it was probably nine or 10 months later when I was flying back to Toronto and Enron was plastered all over the front covers of every business magazine that you could read. I remember that well, yeah. That I sort of reflected on, wow, I've never been exposed to an organization with such an incredibly dense feeling of winning at all costs. There was a win at all costs peppered with more alpha males per square foot than almost any other boardroom that I've been in anywhere in the world. Mm. It's easy in hindsight, but there was very much a sense of, well, the rules don't apply to us. There was certainly something in the air where those belief systems were very evident, even to an outsider like myself. Mm. So that was one example. The other example, when I was working in the UK, And a dear friend and I were presenting to a group of technology engineers, and he held up the very first Apple iPhone, um, if we can all remember what that looked like. And in this wonderful British accent, he said, you gentlemen realize that this is the future of mobile telephony. And they burst into laughter. And one of the gentlemen leaned forward and he said, what does that music company know about mobile phones? Wow. And we were at a presentation in Espoo, Finland, which was the global headquarters of Nokia. So at the time, you have an organization that had upwards of 80 to 85% penetration of mobile phones globally. Looking at somebody like Apple out in California on the other end of the world, other side of the world, and going, what does that upstart know about what we've done, what we've created in almost every other market in the planet? There isn't a data point about mobile phones that we do not have in this building. In that moment, I think I must have hidden under the desk when my colleague said that. I was like, oh, dear Lord, you're not going to embarrass us again with the Apple is the future comment. But as I think back on those two episodes, I look at them as reflections or manifestations of the culture inherent at those organizations. Now, we can paraphrase them as blind spots. We can paraphrase. You know, what comes to mind for me is that they seem myopic. So for the Enron story, you said they win at all costs, right? And then for the cell phone companies, you're talking about one player who's looking at the future and another one that's saying, but we already know everything, which seems really myopic. And this is, again, one of those interesting things about culture. Culture, sorry, let me me rephrase that. Yeah, I'm going to edit No, edit the heck out of this. Um, Actually, that's going to be in the bloopers now. Go ahead. There we go. Organizations that are successful inherently create a self-fulfilling prophecy around their culture. Mm. Otherwise, they would have gone out of business. So the reality of we've been successful, we are brilliant, can become very much a big glass of Kool-Aid that everybody starts to drink. 
it can quite quickly occur what was originally an entrepreneurial spirit can very quickly become what I would call culture calcification, that the culture hardens into, well, we know everything about everything. There's nothing that's a surprise to us. And I think that's a dangerous point for cultures. If you're not keeping an eye on, have we hardened our culture in areas that exposed us to missing signals in the market or changes in the way that people think, act, work, mm. behave? I mean, I think for the organizations that perhaps have struggled the most with COVID is the ones whose cultures were so hard and fast around aspects like, well, if I can't see my team, they're obviously goofing off on Facebook. Right. <laughs> so there's no way that remote working could ever happen inside this organization because I don't trust my team. There's no way they'll be productive. Along comes a global pandemic that didn't get that memo about how you think about culture. Yeah. So I think for the organizations and the leaders that I've been most inspired by, they're the ones who recognize that culture is not a one and done thing. Mm. It's something that you have to work on every single day. And much like a professional sports team, you've got to be testing the edges all the time to say, am I getting the maximum out of these people? Mm. And what can I do to inspire them to even greater heights? And what am I doing that's possibly impeding their ability and that's what true leaders who get culture obsess about. So what's the relationship between culture and values then, like corporate values? Well, if you're asking the idealist in me, the idealist would say your values are a reflection of what you want your culture to be and what your culture is or could be. Okay. If I'm being a realist, our values are the things that we bang up on posters on the wall and we put on coffee mugs and every quarter somebody from our executive team comes and chants them at the start of some all-staff meeting. And then 20 minutes later, we go back to behaving the way that we do. That is where the schism exists. So that's a beautiful segue then into my next question, which is about communication. And as you know, talk about talk is all about communication. So if creating and sustaining a positive and strong culture mm -hmm. is not about identifying values and plastering them all over the walls, how does an effective leader communicate the culture that he or she wants in an organization? I would suggest communication is absolutely foundational, Andrea. Well, it is. It's absolutely it fun. Well, communication is always a signal of intent. You communicate to signal a direction, an intent, a purpose. Those are all vitally important for your culture. Mm -hmm. Your culture needs some sense of where do you want to go? What do you want to achieve? Why do you believe that? Your culture looks to communication in its multitude of artifacts because those are signals. But then it looks at those signals and it says, well, you told me this one thing. Yeah. And now, shockingly, I'm now going to evaluate your behaviors against those. And if the delta between what you say and what you do you can drive an ocean liner through, well, then you can't expect people not to feel skeptical. I, I love how you've brought up the term artifacts a few times, because I feel like the artifacts are almost like the communication medium or tools that are being employed mm -hmm. to encourage the permeation of the culture, yes. if that makes sense. It's very easy for me to, to call on Stan Slap again. Your culture is perpetually looking for signs that validate its survival. 
And I think as humans inside an organization, we can probably all look to our own behaviors and the way we've acted inside companies and said, there's an enormous truth in that. I can't say enough, particularly in the, in the, in the spirit of, of this particular podcast, that communications are absolutely vital. Yeah. As they are in any interaction between two human beings, communication is one of the most primary things that we do to connect, to understand each other, to bond with each other. These are all outcomes of communication. Mm -hmm. They're also all outcomes of communication that has clarity, that has consistency. That is an idiom as old as time. Yeah. Consistency and, and integration of everything, of all of these elements that we've been talking about is a mantra of mine, which reminds me that I, I recently read an article. It's actually an interview that you wrote where you interviewed the CEO of the Citizens Bank of Edmond. And, mm -hmm. and she said she heard someone in a beauty salon talking about the, this horrible bank with a horrible woman leading it. And she said, well, that's me. And she did manage to turn it around. And they have a mantra. They call themselves the MacGyvers of banking. And I thought, that's beautiful. Implicit in that entire interview that I read is communication, communication, communication. Do you find that mantras are common in corporations with strong, positive cultures? Yes. I would say most organizations probably have somewhere a manifestation or a manifesto of, we believe these following things are critically important. I think, again, and this is me speaking as perhaps a marketing person. I look at many of those and go, those are just statements of fact. Mm. I look at the banking industry and I would encourage anybody listening to this to open the website of 100 random banks across the world and go to the values or culture section of those websites and see if the words trust and honesty and... That's a baseline. It better be, right? <laughs> Absolutely. If honesty is not wired into the DNA of the people who own all of my financial business, yeah. then I've got a really big problem Again, I'm always struck by regardless of what you say, if that isn't reinforced by what you do, mm -hmm. a subtle head nod to our dear friend, Mr. Ron Tite. I was just thinking, think, do, say. I have one more question for you before we move on to the five rapid fire questions. My last question here for you is, do you have any specific advice for leaders who are aspiring to create a strong, positive culture these days? Mm -hmm. Before we press record, we were talking about now more than ever. And I, what I'm talking about is in, in this day of the COVID pandemic and working from home, what kind of advice would you give to senior executives and leaders who are really trying to create a strong, positive culture in their organization? I'd say two things. I'd say, number one, do you honestly and objectively know the culture you have today? Time and again, leaders are probably the least objective about their cultures inside their organization. So that would be number one. Do you know that? And are you being objective about that culture? The second thing, and this is reflective of all of us going through COVID. This is, this is a time unlike any other in modern history. So for any leader who still consider themselves omnipotent and omnipresent and the owner of every single answer, the only person you're fooling is yourself. Leaders prepared to publicly recognize they don't have all the answers are the ones that will gain significant credibility. Because the truth of the matter is, nobody's crystal ball is working right now. 
So if you continue to suggest that you know everything and are invincible and invulnerable, I think you lose immediate credibility. There's never been a better time and a better opportunity, more likely, for you to be objective about your culture and for you to be objective and vulnerable about your leadership. Both of those things, I suggest, will provide the opportunity for your organization to genuinely thrive and for you to create a culture that attracts talent like a magnet. And isn't that what every leader wants today? Very true. And now we're going to move on to the five rapid fire questions. Are you ready? Is this not the time that I hang up and move on and go do something? (laughs) This is the most terrifying part of this entire podcast, Andrea. Please be gentle. Okay, ready? Number one, what Mm -hmm. are your pet peeves? I live with three incredible and beautiful women, my wife and two daughters. Pet peeves, makeup everywhere. (laughs) But then they would say, you never put the top on the toothpaste, Dad, so this is our revenge. Nice, nice. Okay, question number two. What type of learner are you? I would say visual. It befuddles my wife, but I can sit with my headphones on, listening to music quite loudly, and read a book and write. And she's like, how do you manage to do that? And I'm like, because the music inspires me and then I learn more as I'm reading. Wow. Maybe I've just highlighted another weird thing about me. (laughs) Maybe we can edit the weirdness out of this podcast if that's possible. Well, if you're a visual learner, I would love to see your visual depiction of what culture is. Mm, That sounds ominously like a homework exercise. You don't have it? You have it. Oh, you're saving them for your clients. Okay. Isn't this the moment where I do something from Austin Powers and just do a strokey beard moment? Mm. You know what? When I work with clients and they describe things, I'm so visual. I'm also a painter. Like I paint and I'm so off the charts, which is kind of strange for a podcaster. But I grab a piece of paper and I start making arrows and maybe it's a common marketing thing. I wonder. Well, there's no strategy person in the world who doesn't know the power of an intersecting Venn diagram. I knew you were going to say Look what happens when these three veins intersect. Yeah. Forget the two by two. Okay. Question number three, introvert or extrovert? Well, that's tough. Uh, Extrovert. Extrovert, I think. If that's okay with you, I'm a Canadian extrovert. If it's all right with you, I'm an extrovert. That's funny. Okay. Question number four, communication preference for personal conversations. Pick up the phone and bore them to tears by talking at them for three hours. Oh, there you go. Really? I probably have about 200 annual reviews from various organizations that say, we really wish Hilton would get to the point and stop being so loquacious. (laughs) And I said, well, I'm saying, but nobody told Chaucer that or Shakespeare that (laughs) or Milton that. Why do you want me to be less loquacious? Come on now. These are pearls. Pearls. Why say pearls? So, yes, I I prefer a phone call over sitting like my teenage daughters texting their friends, even if they're in the same room. I would much rather call somebody. And yet you're not an auditory learner. I'm I'm all sorts of mixed up, Andrea. I make no apologies. You're very ambiguous. Okay. Question number five. Is there a podcast, a blog, or an email newsletter that you find yourself recommending to people lately? There's a multitude. Obviously, I will be adding this particular podcast episode to everybody on the planet. That goes without saying. There are a couple that are my go-to standards. Obviously, Scott Galloway and Kara Swisher. 
Absolutely phenomenal. I um, just uh, I just interviewed Andrew Jenkins, who's a social media guru. Do you know Andrew Jenkins? I do indeed. And that was his first recommendation as well. Yeah, those two are spectacular, full of piss and vinegar, which makes it an interesting podcast. But there's a Swedish podcast in English by this wonderful gentleman called Tobias Sturenson. Okay. And it's around building adaptive organizations. Huh. And Tobias, in such a wonderful fashion, manages to find people on the edges of management thinking, people who talk about ethics, people who talk about integrity, people who talk about... And he just has these wonderful conversations with them. So, you know, Tobias, if you're listening to this, you're doing great work, brother. Please keep it up. Great. I will put a link to that in the show notes. Is there anything else you want to add about culture? My closing thought on culture would be the following. The times that we are living through now provide such an incredible opportunity for any leader to genuinely step into culture as a business imperative and as a competitive advantage. And that any leader who doesn't do that now, five years from now, will look back at that as one of the greatest missed opportunities of their time in leadership. Your culture can unleash all sorts of creativity that you can't begin to imagine. And if you're a leader and you don't see the chance to do that right now, I say you're missing the greatest opportunity handed to you on a plate. Very, very well put. Thank you so much for everything, Hilton. It was lots of fun to chat. Always a delight speaking with you, Andrea. Let's not make it so long next time, okay? And and so formal. <laughs> of course. I don't know. How to, I don't know what the sign-off is here. If I was a bomber, I'd have a little meme of me dropping a mic. I don't know. How do your other guests sign off? Did they go, I'm out! <laughs> I'm out! Okay, that was a fun interview. And yes, it was conducted over Zoom, not face-to-face, in case you're wondering. Thanks again to Hilton for sharing his expertise with all of us and for making us laugh. Let me summarize now some of Hilton's main points. I categorize these main points into four main topics. There's defining culture, communicating culture, references and examples, and last, the significance of culture in today's environment. All right, let's start with defining culture. That's always a good place to start. Hilton started by saying that culture is how we act, behave, and make decisions to fit into an organization. Specifically, culture is how the edges of your organization behave on your very worst day. I love that. That's the barometer. That's how you can measure the strength and tone of your culture. Do you trust your employees? Are they empowered to do the right thing for the right reasons? And what will they do on their very worst day? But Hilton warns us that culture is not at all binary. It's not simply good or bad. So how else can you evaluate the culture of your organization? One test is whether your culture is able to accelerate the delivery, the execution, and the activation of your strategy. If your culture is impeding the execution of your strategy, then something's wrong. We also talked about how customers and consumers are profoundly impacted by culture. We often hear of a common corporate mission or strategy of customer centricity, don't we? But being truly customer-centric is actually an outcome of your culture, not an objective. It's an outcome. So that's another barometer of the health of your culture. 
Whether the firm is B2C or B2B, consider whether your people are genuinely interested in serving its customers, or do they see your customers as a necessary evil? Okay, so how should leaders communicate the culture within the firm? I loved Hilton's comment about communication and culture. He said that communication is absolutely foundational. It's something you have to work on every single day. Consistency over time and across media, including the annual strategic plan, the values that are plastered on the wall, the mantras, the slogans, and the other artifacts, tangible and intangible signals or cues that communicate the culture. First and foremost, that means walking the talk consistently. That sounds a lot like marketing, doesn't it? Yep, consistency in communication is critical. Hilton also brought up the analogy of coaching a professional sports team. You've got to be testing the edges every day, asking yourself, am I getting the maximum out of these people? And what can I do to inspire them to even greater heights? And what am I doing that's possibly impeding their ability? Hilton says that is what true leaders who get culture obsess about every day. On to references and examples. Hilton brought up a few other culture gurus in our conversation. If you go to the show notes on the talkabouttalk.com website, I've included links to all of these folks for you there. Hilton mentioned Stan Slap, Edgar Schein, Peter Drucker, Tobias Stevenson, the Swedish podcast host, and our shared admiration for Ron Tite. Let's start with Peter Drucker. Drucker is frequently quoted as saying, culture eats strategy for breakfast. As in, if your culture isn't strong, then your strategy really doesn't matter much. Hilton mentioned that this is a misquote. So I looked it up. That's what I do. <laughs> Apparently, while this quote, culture eats strategy for breakfast, is frequently attributed to Peter Drucker, no one has been able to confirm where or when he first said this. That said, that said, everyone does agree that it sounds exactly like something Drucker might say. It also clearly makes the point. Culture and strategy need to be aligned. So there's Peter Drucker. There's also Stan Slap. Yes, a very cool name. Stan says that culture is a marker of the commitment of your people. And Hilton said he can't think of a better way to define culture. It's more than just trust and empowerment and job satisfaction. It's a marker of the commitment of your people. Speaking of commitment, we talked about the examples of Starbucks and the Four Seasons hotel chain. You can probably imagine what it would be like to work at either of these firms. You understand the commitment of the people in that organization, and you certainly know what to expect as a customer. That is culture. Stan Slap also highlights that your culture is perpetually looking for signs that validates its survival. Again, the signals, the cues, the artifacts. Edgar Schein also had something to say about artifacts. When you get down to the level where decisions are made, whether they're day-to-day -day decisions or massive strategic decisions, it isn't about the posters on the wall or the sayings on the coffee mugs. It's how our decisions are made, and those decisions are driven by culture. You also heard us declaring our admiration for Ron Tite. Ron Tite is a master marketer. In his book, think, do, say. He talks about how great people and great organizations succeed in this busy world based on what they think, what they do, and what they say. What they think, as in their purpose. What they do, as in their behaviors. 
and what they say, as in how they talk about it, how they communicate. And this is exactly what we're talking about here. If you haven't read Ron Tite's book yet, Think, Do, Say, I highly recommend it. And I'll leave a link to it in the show notes. Okay, now, last, some insights and advice in terms of culture in relation to COVID. Specifically, how the current environment is actually an opportunity for leaders. Let's back up. Hilton talked about how some successful firms, as they advance from small startup to successful corporation, lose their entrepreneurial spirit and they calcify, as he calls it. The culture calcifies or hardens into a static, we know everything about everything culture. The problem then is that change is inevitable. Well, if the current environment isn't a test for this calcification, I don't know what is. Hilton shared that the organizations that have struggled the most with COVID are the ones whose cultures lack trust. Leaders who assume that their people must be goofing off on Facebook when they can't see them in their office. Oof. Hilton concluded with two challenges for managers who are leading their culture through these challenging times. Number one, seek to objectively understand your current culture. Here's the thing. Leaders are probably the least objective about the cultures inside their organizations, but understanding the culture objectively is critical. And number two, be humble and vulnerable. As Hilton says, no one's crystal ball is working right now. If you're faking invincibility, omnipotence, and omnipresence, then you lose credibility. By being honest and vulnerable, by trusting your people, you can provide the opportunity for your organization to genuinely thrive and for you to create a culture that attracts talent like a magnet. I love that. Let me close now by quoting Hilton. He said, Any leader who doesn't genuinely step into culture as a business imperative, five years from now, will look back at this as one of the greatest missed opportunities of their time in leadership. Your culture can unleash all sorts of creativity that you can't even begin to imagine. And if you're a leader and you don't see the chance to do that right now, you're missing the greatest opportunity. It's being handed to you on a plate. All right, I think that's a great place to close. Thanks again to Hilton Barber. I hope you learned a thing or two about culture, and I hope you're feeling as inspired as I am. Please email me and let me know your thoughts, okay? I'd love to hear about your own experience with culture, or if you have any ideas for future Talk About Talk podcast episodes. One last thing. If you're not signed up for the Talk About Talk communication newsletter yet, please do so. This is your chance to get free communication skills coaching from me every week in a simple to digest email. I promise, no spam and never more than once a week. Just go to talkabouttalk.com to sign up or email me directly and I'll add you to the list. You can email me anytime at andrea at talkabouttalk.com. Thanks for listening and talk soon. 